Amen. Well, thank you, Mike and the praise team, for that worship. They have oriented us towards the cross and towards Christ this morning. That's exactly where we need to be. Uh, you also need to be in Genesis 40. So if you're not there, uh, turn with me in copy of God's Word. There's some back here on the back table. There's a couple things you need to have with you. This is information. Don't forget to get those. It has information that you, that you need to know on that. Uh, more importantly, right now, you need a, you need a sermon notes guide. I've tried to, to put enough there and, and make it simple where you can follow along. We're going to cover a lot of ground today, and so you'll want an outline there in front of you. Uh, Micah last week uh, brought us up to the point in the narrative of Joseph. That's what we've been looking through the gospel in Genesis, and so we're, we're getting pretty close to the end here, and we're, we're moving pretty fast. But he, 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 he brought us from basically from one pit to another. He was in the, remember his brothers hated Joseph because he was the favored son and he ends up in a, in a pit and only to be pulled out and sold into slavery uh, where he finds himself now in prison. And so Genesis 39-21 reminds us of something as Joseph is in the pit of prison. It says, but the Lord was with Joseph. And showed him his steadfast love and gave him favor in the sight of the keeper of the prison. And so one big thing we keep running around and around and over and over the gospel in Genesis. This beautiful story of God's story keeps reminding us that God uses and God works through his chosen people to accomplish his sovereign plans. But more than that. And we'll see it again today. God works through all people to accomplish His sovereign plans. Whether they love Him or hate Him. They simply serve God's sovereign purposes. And we're going to see that in the life of an idol-worshiping pagan who actually thinks he's a god today. I do this morning as we, as, as we, we sort of get into the end of this Joseph narrative. This is the peak of this narrative, I'm concerned this morning. I'm concerned because of the way we have misapplied the story of Joseph, some of us, nearly all of our lives in Sunday school. And I wanted to say this very clearly because we're being recorded right now. We categorically denounce and rebuke the prosperity gospel. It is another gospel and it is dangerous, brothers and sisters. And it is dangerous because it has seeped in even in the way we apply the story of Joseph. Just think it through with me. Think about the times you heard in Sunday school. Joseph was a faithful through the hard times. And God then blessed him with fame, fortune, and family. And so, when your friends pick up your efforts, you need to be careful because that's prosperity thinking. And don't be surprised when Junior believes it. And so Junior will believe it and he will go to a, a college. And he will persevere to be at the top of his class. He will, he will jump into the career workforce and he will labor to climb and to grind to climb that corporate ladder to secure himself a good job. And he will end up with 
a good paying career, a big house, and all that the American dream promises, and he will have no care nor no time for Christ and his kingdom. And that will be exactly what we taught him the purpose of Joseph was. He will simply apply it to his life. Do you see how dangerous this is this morning? We must get the gospel of Joseph. We must get the point right this morning. Micah set us up last week when he said that the story of Joseph, Joseph is not even really the point of the story. If we want to understand, well then what is? First thing to notice, God uses both the pinnacles and the pits of our life to accomplish His purpose. What we're going to see in the life of Joseph is it was a lot of pits. Remember we said a week or two ago that quite honestly, where's the danger this morning for me and you? The danger is when we're at the pinnacle. God humbles us in the pits. So we want to get this right. So let's pray for ourselves this morning. Lord, help us as we open up this beautiful story, this amazing story of which we could preach it for the next Three months and never mind the depths of what's here. So Lord, thank you for your gospel and thank you that it does not begin in Matthew, that it began before the foundation of the world and then you revealed it to us in Genesis. So Lord, help us. Give us wisdom. Help us to understand the beauty of this story and not miss the gospel. In Jesus' name, pray. And so, you remember the narrative of this, of Joseph, really unfolds with three dreams. Three pairs of dreams. Comes in pairs. And the first one, remember the, the whole point of the first dream was Joseph had it. And his dreams were basically saying, the brothers are going to bow down before Joseph, and even the father will bow before Joseph. And that, you know, that made him really popular. That's what sort of ended up getting him in the pit, is... is not only that he was a favored son, but his, his son saw that he expected to be an authority over them. His dad seemed to agree with that. And so now Joseph sits in an Egyptian prison, and now unfolding in today's narrative, we have two more pairs of dreams. What I wanted you to see this morning, even the way we title these, the main points, is that for Joseph, God gives these dreams. And it is only God who can interpret them. So we see that God Almighty interprets the dreams. And it is God Almighty who will cause Joseph to rise to power in Egypt. So remember, why is Joseph in the pit of prison in Egypt? It's because of Potiphar's wife. Remember, that whole situation that God had put everything in Joseph's hands. Gave favor in the eyes of Potiphar. Now he takes care of his whole house. Everything but one thing, his wife. And his wife sets her eyes on Joseph and seduces him day after day after day. And he will not yield. And finally she makes her move. And he ends up being accused of something he did not do. And now in prison. And so we pick up the story there in Chapter 40, verse 1. Sometime after this, the cupbearer and the king of Egypt and his baker committed an offense against the Lord, the king of Egypt. And Pharaoh was angry with his two officers. 
the chief cupbearer and the chief baker, and he put them in the custody of the house of the captain of the guard in prison where Joseph was confined. The captain of the guard appointed Joseph to be with them, and he attended them. They continued some time in custody. And so if you remember the story, Joseph now finds himself in prison, but the captain of the guard puts him in charge of taking care of the prisoners, which doesn't sound like a very nice privilege to me. <laughs> he's, now he's put in charge of basically serving the prisoners, and now he's put in charge of taking care of the needs of these two prisoners, which he does. Don't miss the point, verse 8. These cupbearer and, and the baker have dreams, and they trouble them. So they said in verse 8, they said to him, we have had dreams. They're speaking to to Joseph. There is no one to interpret them. And Joseph said to them, do not interpretations belong to God. Please tell them to me. And so you see what, we see Joseph's theology coming out here. He understands God's the only one who can interpret dreams, but he's going to use me, so tell them to me. And so now we see that both the cupbearer and the baker's dreams are going to be interpreted. Do you remember what they were? The first was a cupbearer. He saw a vine. It had three branches. They produced grapes. And he saw himself with the Pharaoh's cup, squeezing those grapes into that cup and serving Pharaoh. And Joseph said, in three days, you will be delivered. Between verse 9 and 19, you will be delivered and you will be restored. And so the baker's listening on. Look at verse 16. He said, well... Good news for him must be good news for me. So when the chief baker saw the interpretation was favorable, he said to Joseph, I also had a dream. So remember, he describes his dream. I had, I've got three baskets on my head, and the top's full of all kind of bread, and, and yet there's birds coming and eating the bread. What does that mean? And he said, three days, um, Pharaoh's going to lift up your head too, but he's going to hang you by it. He'll be executed. In verse 20, look with me. On the third day, which was Pharaoh's birthday, he made a feast for all his servants and lifted up his head of the chief cupbearer and the head of the chief baker among his servants. He restored the chief cupbearer to his position and he placed the cupbearer in Pharaoh's hand, but he hanged the chief baker as Joseph had interpreted them. Look at verse 23. Yet the chief cupbearer did not remember Joseph, but forgot him. You see, Joseph, when he interpreted the cupbearer's dreams, he said, listen, when this happens, because he knew it was going to happen, when this happens, don't forget me. Remember my afflictions. I'm down in this pit. Mention me. Didn't. He forgets. Look at Genesis chapter 41 now, verse 1. The narrator makes sure we get to point. Two whole years go by. You see that? Joseph is now about 30 Pharaoh has two dreams now. He's still in, Joseph's still in prison. Now, Joseph, now Pharaoh has the third pair of dreams. He has two dreams. This is the third one in the narrative. And this is what God's going to use to remind the cupbearer about Joseph. So he has these dreams. They're bad. Dreams were important for Egyptians. Um, they believed that during their dreams, that door to the other world was opened up. So... This was, he knew this was big. And he couldn't figure it out, and no one else could either. So he was dismayed, and during that time, it's when the cupbearer, the light comes on. He speaks to Pharaoh, verse 12, speaking about Joseph. A young Hebrew was 
was there with us, speaking of when they were in prison. A servant of the captain of the guards, when we told him, he interpreted our dreams to us, given an interpretation to each man according to his dreams. And as he interpreted to us, so it came about. I was restored to my office and the baker was hanged. Well, that's all Pharaoh needed to know. And so we now see, look at verse 14. Pharaoh is going to retell these dreams to Joseph and then Joseph's going to interpret them. Then Pharaoh sent and called Joseph and they quickly brought him out of the pit. That's important. Where was he? In the pit. And when he was shaved himself and changed his clothes, he came in before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh said to Joseph, I've had a dream and there is no one who can interpret it. I have heard it said of you that you can hear a dream, you can interpret it. Joseph answered Pharaoh, it is not in me. God will give Pharaoh a favorable answer. Then Pharaoh said to Joseph, behold, in my dream I was standing on the bank of the Nile. Seven cows, plump and attractive, came up out of the Nile and fed in the reed grass. Seven other cows came up after them, poor and very ugly and thin, such as I had never seen in all the land of Egypt. And the thin, ugly cows ate up the first seven plump cows. But when they had eaten them, no one could have known that they had eaten them, for they were still just as ugly as at the beginning. Then I awoke. I also saw in my dream seven ears growing on one stalk, full of and good, Seven ears withered then and blighted by the east wind sprouted after them. And the thin ears swallowed up the seven good ears. And I told the magician, the musicians, sorry Mike, uh, <laughs> the magicians, <laughs> not the musicians. That was funny. Uh, but, but there was no one that could explain it. Maybe it was just funny to me. I'm sorry. <laughs> Crazy people have these little conversations in their mind, but sometimes if you don't say them out loud, they try to be crazy. So, this dream drove Pharaoh crazy. I'm segueing. And uh, now we have the interpretation. Okay, focus. Then Joseph said to Pharaoh, The dream of Pharaoh are one. God has revealed to Pharaoh what he's about to do. The seven good cows are seven ears, seven years. And the seven good ears are seven years. The dreams are one. The seven lean and ugly cows came up after them are seven years. And the seven empty ears blighted by the east wind are also seven years of famine. It is as I told you, God has shown to Pharaoh what he is about to do. There will come seven years of plenty throughout all the land of Egypt, but after them there will arise seven years of famine, and all the plenty will be forgotten in the land of Egypt. The famine will consume the land, and the plenty will be unknown in the land by reason of the famine that will follow, for it will be very severe. Verse 32. And the doubling of Pharaoh's dreams mean that this thing is fixed by God, and God will shortly bring it about. So what I want you to see there before we move on is just three verses. I want you to see Joseph's God-centered response. Just an hour before he's in the pit. Now he's before the most powerful man and, and so for most people in the world. How does he respond? Look at verse 16. Joseph answered Pharaoh, It's not in me. God will give the fa a favorable answer to Pharaoh. So what's the point? You see, Pharaoh thought he was a God. Thought he was a God. Now Pharaoh's in a helpless situation. And he says, please, you know, you've got to help me out. Tell me, Jimmy says, 
I can't tell you the dream, but my God can. Now look at verse 25. And Joseph said to Pharaoh, the dreams of Pharaoh one, God has revealed to Pharaoh what he is about to do. In other words, Pharaoh, you're not a God. God's God, and he's going to tell you what he's going to do. So you're not in charge of the future. God is. Verse 32. Pharaoh, these two dreams means that this is fixed by God. Pharaoh, this will happen. Because God will cause it. And so you would think there, he's sitting there going, well, appreciate that, have a good day. I'm going to go about my way. No, he's got a plan. So he says, hey, I got a plan here. Verses 33 to 36. Seven, take 20% over the next seven years, save it. And we'll have enough to make it through the famine. So this was his plan. Pick somebody wise and discerning, discerning, go through all the land during these next years of plenty and save it. We'll have enough. So at this point, do you see quite clearly in the text? It's God's sovereignty is not only controlling the daily affairs of men. He's also controlling their destinies. And he's using both kings and rulers to accomplish his purpose. Do you see that? So, Joseph, in that moment, goes from the pit to the pinnacle. Now he's in dangerous waters. So, verse 37. The proposal pleased Pharaoh and all his servants. And Pharaoh said to his servants, Can we find a man like this in whom the Spirit of God? And Pharaoh said to Joseph, Since God has shown you all this, there is none as discerning and wise as you are. You shall be over all my house, and all my people shall order themselves as you command. Only as regards to the throne will I be greater than you. So look down at verse 45. And Pharaoh called Joseph's name Zaphnath-Paneah, and he gave him... In marriage, Asenath, the daughter of Potiphar, the priest of On. So Joseph went out over all the land of Egypt. So I want you to notice something here. It's important. Verse 45. Pharaoh changes his name. And Pharaoh gives him a wife. He didn't have a choice about that. So we need to... This morning, I have a little reality check in our story of Joseph. Joseph is still a slave. He's still a slave. And don't miss this, but we have to think like a covenant Israelite right now. In the mind of Joseph, though he's out of the pit and on the pinnacle, now he has an Egyptian name. He's in the wrong land serving the wrong leader of the wrong nation. Then God gives him children. Verse 50 to 52. So much we could say here. He names these two children Ephraim, which means fruitful, and Manasseh, which means to forget. Both of these centers on the reality that this land is, my, is the land of affliction. This is not home. It's not home. That you have helped me forget the pain of the past and now you have made me fruitful in this land but don't miss their names important 
He didn't give them Egyptian names. He gave them Hebrew names. So he tells these two sons, you will identify yourselves with God's covenant people because that's who we are. So he does. So the rest of the 56 and 57, we see the plan is working. And then the famine begins. And this famine is not just a localized famine in Egypt. This is a famine of all the earth. And so this famine makes its way, guess where? Canaan. It comes to Joseph's family and they begin to experience the impact of that. And so God uses the famine. So it's God Almighty who sends Joseph's brothers to Egypt to save both them and their families. But see, in the mind of Jacob and in the mind of the brothers, they were just trying to get physical sustenance. They didn't want to die. Physical provision was their their plans. But God had bigger plans. God's goal was both physical and spiritual. He was going to bring about repentance and forgiveness and reconciliation. All that was in their future and they didn't know it. They didn't plan for it. Could it be sometimes that our plans are far too small? Brothers and sisters, even right now, we should give thanks for God's grace. He makes oftentimes those big plans in spite of us. And uses us. So Jacob sends his sons to Egypt. Except, look at verse, chapter 42, verse 3. So ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers. For he feared that harm might happen to him. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. In other words, the brothers just came in with a whole bunch of other people who were running out of food. So they come in, and here's what happens. Just like Joseph's first dream predicted, they find themselves bowing in front of Joseph, and they don't even know it. So here's what we're going to see. We're going to see, yes, Joseph gives them food. He does. But Joseph is testing his brothers. Big time. And so, chapter 42, verses 6 37, we see these tests begin. The first question that he's going to seek an answer for is a Benjamin alive. And so, how he goes about finding this information is he accuses them of being spies. Y'all are spies. I know what you're doing. So, what does he do? He puts them on the defensive. No, 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 we're not spies. No, no, I know what you're doing. You come over here to see see the land. You're spies. Look at verse 13. And they said, talking about the brothers, "We we your servants are twelve brothers, the sons of one man in the land of Canaan. And behold, the youngest in the day is our father, and the other one's no more. Can you hear him trying to defend himself? And so he gets on talking, and he finds out exactly what he wants to know. Benjamin is alive. It was an important question. Here's what he was wondering. Did you kill Did you kill him? Because he was favored like you did me? Treat him the same way? To no, know he's alive. And so here was the next question. Well, someone volunteered to go get him? In other words, here's what he's really getting at. Who's the leader? You ever ask that question? You ever been to something that's being led really bad? You're sitting there going, who's really in charge here? You know, is anybody in charge? This was the question. 
Well, someone volunteered to go get Benjamin. Look at verse 15 and 16. By this you shall be tested by the life of Pharaoh. You shall not go up from this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of you. Let him bring your brother while you remain confined. That your words may be tested whether there is truth in you or else by the life of Pharaoh you, sh- you should surely spies. Silence. <laughs> no one volunteers. So what does he do? It's important. Verse 17, he throws them in the pit. Irony going on here. <laughs> Pits where they, it's where they threw their brother. He only defines himself in an Egyptian pit of prison. And now they get thrown in the pit for three days. Awful lot of things going on here. There's spiritual connections I hope you're making as the story unfolds. We can't get to them. So, will someone volunteer to go? No, that's the answer to the question. Will someone volunteer to stay? Verse 18 and 19, On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you shall live, for I fear God. If you're honest men, let one of your brothers remain confined where, when you are in custody and let the rest go and carry grain for the famine of your households. And so they seem in favor of this, and yet no one stands up. But what does happen? Look at verse 21. Their guilt-ridden conscience explodes. Verse 21, And they said to one another, In truth, we are guilty concerning our, our brother, in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us, and we did not listen. That is why distress has come upon us. You see, Joseph understands everything that they're saying, and they don't know it. They're saying, we know why this is happening. You see, the sins that they had done in the past did not go away. Time does not cover your sins. Time does not cover the sins that are done to you. Listen, they must be removed. But still, in the story, no one volunteers to go. So this brings up another question. <laughs> Will someone come for Simeon? Because guess what he does? Look at verse 24. Then he turned away from them and wept. So don't think Joseph is, is enjoying this and playing some kind of mind games. He's already forgiven his brothers. He goes away and weeps. Look. And, then, and he returned to them and spoke to them and he took Simeon from them and he bound him before their eyes. And so he, he binds up Simeon. So no, no one volunteers. Now the question is, now your brother's going to be in prison. Are you going to forget about him? Like me? So here's what happens. He creates another question. When he, he fills their sack full of foods, he puts their money back in the sack and sends them on their way. The question is, what they're going to do when they find that money? And they open it up. Verse 26. And they loaded up their donkeys and with their grain and departed. And as one of them opened his sack to give his donkey fodder at the lodging place, he saw his money in the mouth of his sack. And he said to his brothers, My money has been put back. Here it is in the mouth of my sack. At this their heart failed them. And they turned trembling to one another, saying, What is this that God has done to us? See, the guilty conscience is working. You see it? But what do they do? 
Got the money. Brothers in Egypt, they go home. Your daddy's still leading the show here. They go home. They leave Simeon. They keep the money. They go home afraid, defeated, and guilt-ridden. Does that describe you this morning? Afraid, defeated, and guilt-ridden. Got good news this morning. But the, the story goes on. See, the, 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 one of the questions he sets up with this test is this, this question. Have they earned Jacob's trust? going to be an important question because guess what Jacob's not going to do if he don't trust the brothers he's not sending Benjamin back and so this is the question will he verse 36 and Jacob their father said to them you have bereaved me of my children Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more and now you would take Benjamin all this has come against me Then Reuben said to his father, Kill my two sons if I do not bring them back to you. Put him in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Then he said, My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead and he is only left, only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you should make, you would bring my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. No, they don't trust him. They flunked the test. And brothers and sisters, if that would have been it, God would have been just as loving and just as just as he is. But praise God, it's like having a bad test at school and God gives you a retest. God has a divine retest that begins in Genesis 43. And it comes because of the lack of food when Israel sends his sons back to Egypt for a second time. Genesis 43. Why? Because they didn't have any food. And so the brothers have to remind Israel. No Benjamin. No food. I want you to see something. Verse 3. Judah's appeal. I want you to ask yourself a question. Is a leader emerging here? But Judah said to him. The man solemnly warned us, saying, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. If you will send our brother with us, we will go down and buy you food. But if you will not send him, we will not go down. For the man said to us, You shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Look at verse 9. It's important. I will be a pledge for his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. Listen to me this morning. You need to contrast this. Reuben pledges his kids. Judah pledges himself. The word here, pledge, means guarantee. It should be spiritual. Light should be going off. You should be getting excited right here. Because here's what he's saying. My life for His. I pledge it. So, verse 13. He says, take him. Take also your brother and arise. Go again to the man. Look at verse 14. Important prayer. May God Almighty grant grant you mercy before the man. And may He send back 
your other brother and Benjamin. As for me, if I am bereaved of my children, I am bereaved. Do you see the prayer? Do you see what it's focused on? It's focused on sovereign mercy. You see, this is the difference between praying with prosperity thinking and praying with biblical thinking. Because the reality of mercy acknowledges one simple truth. I do not deserve it. Here's what Israel is praying. I don't deserve, Lord, we don't deserve for my sons to come back. God, sovereign God Almighty, would you bring them back? You see, when we pray for something we think we're entitled to, when we pray for something we think God owes us, we have stepped outside of God's mercy. And brothers and sisters, that's a dangerous place to be. We have good news here. Because now we see the test being retaken. Does Jacob trust us? Yes, he sent Benjamin. Judas stood up as the leader now and says, I pledge my life for his. Acting like a man for the first time. I'm giving, I'm not taking. And so they arise and they go back to Egypt. And the first thing they do, and Joseph sees them coming and steward. He's got a plan in place. They find themselves in front of Joseph's steward. They got this money on their mind. Listen to this. And when he came to the place of lodging, he's explained, the brothers are explaining themselves. When we came to the place of lodging, we opened up our sacks, and there was each man's money in the mouth of the sack, and our money was full weight. So we have brought it again with us, and we have brought the other money down with us to buy food. We do not know who put the money in our sacks. He replied, peace to you. This is the steward talking. Peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Then he brought Simeon out to them. See it. Two tests have been retaken. They honestly go and try to pay back the money. And they retrieve their brother Simeon. And all the other tests at this point centers around how are they going to respond? How are they going to treat Benjamin? Look at verse 26. It's a beautiful reunion. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. You might want to say again. <laughs> and he inquired about their welfare and said, it is, your father's, is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he still alive? They said, your servant, our father. It's important. Your servant, our father, is well. He is still alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. He lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your young Joseph's brother? Himself together back there, and he prepares a meal. It's just 31 to 34. This is a party, but it's a party with a test. And so remember, they don't know him. And yet he sets them around the table, youngest to oldest. Set some in the table in particular order. And then he gives Benjamin five times more food than the rest of them. How are you going to respond to this? You threw me in the pit because I was favored. Now how are you going to treat Benjamin? 
Wish we had more time there. They passed that test too. They were just grateful. Had a good time. Final exam's not, not here yet. Final exam's coming in Genesis chapter 44. And Joseph tests his brothers with Benjamin. Now, just imagine this. They're on cloud nine. This turned out okay. Got to have a party with the, the big man. He made much of us. We ate too much. We've got our grains are full. We've got Simeon, check. Benjamin, check. Food, check. He loaded up his big dually with all the grain in the back. It's probably a crew cab because there's a lot of those guys. You had to cram them in there. They take off for home. They didn't know Joseph had planted a silver cup in one of their bags. So they're making their way, got their tunes blaring, they're having a good time, and they see the blue lights flashing in the back. Here comes the chariot. The steward was sent after them, pulls them over. How could you do this to, the, to our, your leader who treated you so graciously? How could you treat him so wickedly? And they said, hey, we didn't take anything. And if somebody stole something, you just kill him. And the rest of us will be your servants. He said, okay. And ending with the youngest, and the cup was found in Benjamin's sack. Look at their response. This is big. Then they tore their clothes, and every man loaded his donkey, and they returned to the city together. You see it. Found the cup. Here's what they do. They all load back up, and they all go back to, to the Pharaoh, and they do it together. So we see unity. But I don't want you to miss Judas' appeal. Look at verse 16, chapter 44. This is beautiful. A leader has emerged. So they find themselves before Joseph again. And Judah said, What shall we say to my Lord? What shall we speak? Or how can we clear ourselves? God has found out the guilt of your servants. Behold, we are my Lord's servants, both we and he also in whose hand the cup has been found. Here's what they're saying. We didn't take the cup, but we're guilty before God. We're guilty. In other words, what have they just done? They've acknowledged their sin and their guilt before a holy God. They're saying, this is just. But we are not leaving Benjamin. We'll all be your servants. But we're guilty. And Joseph says, no, no, no. No, you can all leave, but Benjamin's staying. This sets up the test. Y'all can leave. Will you abandon Benjamin? Look at Judah's love for his father. You've got to remember what Micah said last week about who Judah was. Verse 33. Verse, look at verse 30. Now therefore, as soon as I come to your, to your servant, my father, the boy is not with us. Then all of his life is bound up in the boy's life. As soon as he sees that the boy is not with us, he will die. And your servants will bring down the gray hairs of your servant, our father, with sorrow to Sheol. Now you see that very favoritism that made them so angry. He says, you got to understand 
how much my father loves him. He loves him. If I go home without him, it's going to kill him. So here's what he says. Take me. Take me. Verse 33. Now therefore, please, let your servant remain instead of the boy as the servant to my Lord. Listen. And let the boy go back with his brothers. For how can I go back to my father if the boy is not with me? I fear to see the evil that it would find my father. He says, let my brothers and Benjamin leave. I will stand in his place. I will be his substitute. Behold, brothers and sisters, the seed, the leader of God's people that would carry God's seed has been transformed simply by the grace of God. Do you see the point of the narrative? Do you see it? It's not about trying real hard and God blessing you. It's about God preserving and preparing the seed. Mark 10.45 says, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give His life as a ransom for many. Twenty years of mostly pit has accomplished exactly what God intended it to accomplish. And so God Almighty preserves and prepares His chosen people. We see this in chapter 45. What a beautiful chapter. And so Joseph's been swelling up this whole time. This mercy and grace and love and compassion that only comes after you've forgiven has been swelling up. So Joseph reveals three things. First, he reveals himself. Verses 1 to 3. This revelation is not only going to surprise his brothers, it also surprises all the Egyptian house. Then Joseph, verse 1, then Joseph could not control himself before all those who stood by him. He cried, make everyone go out from me. So no one stayed with him. When Joseph made himself known to his brothers, and he wept aloud so that the Egyptians heard it, and the household of Pharaoh heard it. And Joseph said to his brothers, I am Joseph. Is my father still alive? But his brothers could not answer him, for they were dismayed at his presence. The light just comes on that this was, this was our brother whom we sold, and he's understood everything we've said. We're in trouble. We're speechless, confused, dismayed. Joseph not only reveals himself, Listen, Joseph reveals his theology. You see, it is what he believed about God that had governed his action all these years. How woe, dishonor, and disrespect we do to our Lord and even to ourselves when we let our emotions and what we think about ourselves dictate our actions and not our theology. He used his theology. And listen, he all, this is all he had to comfort both himself all these years and his brothers in this moment. Listen to what it says. And Joseph said to his brothers, Come near to me, please. And they came near. And he said, I am your brother Joseph, whom you sold into into Egypt. Who sold them? They did. And now, do not be distressed or angry with yourself because you sold me here. 
For God sent me before you to preserve life. Pause. What's the point of the narrative? That God did all this to preserve life. The life of his people. Goes on, look at. But do you see, before we go on, do you see that he's acknowledging their responsibility? And listen, do you remember, they've already taken responsibility. They said, we're guilty. Verse 6. For the famine has been in the land these two years, and yet there are five years in which there will neither be plow nor harvest. Verse 7. God sent me before you to preserve you for you a remnant on earth and to keep alive for you many survivors. Verse 8. So it was not you who sent me here, but God. And he hath made me the father to Pharaoh, the Lord of all his house, the ruler over all the land. Do you see it? He comforts his brothers with the only thing that can comfort God. His situation has been nothing but changed, but God has never changed. We have here the most comprehensive example of God's sovereignty and man's freedom. And Joseph does not try to relieve the tension between them. He orders it. Yeah, you did it. But God. God ordered it. So that I may preserve a remnant. God sent me here to preserve life. Does that, does God's grace... And providential care, does it comfort you? Because, listen, if God's sovereignty does not comfort you, your theology is off. It's off. It's what he used to comfort himself. It's what he used to comfort his brothers. And if it's not comforting you today, you need to go back and understand who God is. Joseph reveals not only himself, he reveals his theology, but he also reveals the, urgent, reveals the urgency of the plan. Verse 9, look what it says. Hurry up. Go to my father and say to him, Thus says your son Joseph, God has made me Lord of all Egypt. Come down to me. Do not tarry. Why must his father come to him? Because he could not go because he is a slave. Verse 13, you must tell my father of all my honor in Egypt and all that you have seen. Hurry and bring my father down here. I'm concerned today that many of us see guilt as a plague. As some kind of condition that we must medicate or cover up. Brothers and sisters, do you see God's grace gives you guilt. You see, it is the grace of guilt that leads to the grace of repentance. And if we cover up the grace of guilt, then we will not be able to repent. God tells us the grace, guilt is a grace and it brings repentance. And the grace of repentance leads to the grace of forgiveness. And the grace of forgiveness leads to the grace of reconciliation. This is the gospel, brothers and sisters. This is what God gives us. See it in the story. And so Joseph is reconciled to his brothers and restored to his family. Look at this picture of the grace of reconciliation in verse 14. Then he fell upon his brother Benjamin's neck and wept. 
And Benjamin wept upon his neck. Look at verse 15. And he kissed all his brothers and wept upon them. After that, listen, his brothers talked with him. First time that's happened. How do you know you've been reconciled? It's because people begin to talk with you and not about you. This is what happens. The brothers who could not even look on them without hate now weeps together and they have a conversation. Genesis 45, 16 to 28. We'll look at that again next week. But just what happens is Pharaoh gives him this whole entourage to go home to bring back his family and all of their possessions back, and he does. And yet the brothers have to lay out honestly what's, going, what's happened to Israel. Israel doesn't believe him that it's Joseph's alive. His daddy's alive. They don't believe him. He goes out and he sees all this that Pharaoh has sinned, and he finally believes, and he says, Now I can go down and see my son and die in peace. So what today? Are you entrusting yourself to God's good providence? I hope you see it today. That Judah had a son. It was a great, great, great son. <laughs> a lot of greats. His name was David. And David was the king of God's people. And God gave David a covenant. There's going to come a king through your seed. And David had a great, 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 great son in the future. And his name was Jesus. And it is Jesus who comes to his people. As Joseph provided bread for God's people, Jesus says in John 6, 51, I am the living bread. They came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. How do I partake of that bread? Acts 3.19 Brothers and sisters, we have taken repentance out of the gospel. And when you take repentance out of the gospel, you change the gospel. There is no salvation unless there is repentance of sin. We cannot change it. So how does one partake in the bread of life? Acts 3.19 says, Repent therefore and turn back, listen, that your sins may be blotted out. This is the promise of God. You don't have to keep trying to cover up your sins, nor the sins that have been done to you. Christ says that He will blot them out. Look at verse 20. That a time of refreshing may come from the presence of the Lord, that He may send the Christ appointed for you, Jesus. Now look down with me at verse 25. To the Jewish people who killed their Messiah. you got to get this this morning. You, he says, you are the sons of the prophet and of the covenant that God made with your father saying to Abraham, and in your offspring shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Verse 26, God 
having raised up his servant, sent him to you first. Why? So that you can have more stuff? No. To bless you. How? By turning everyone from your wickedness. This is the greatest gift God can give us to turn us from our sin and to toward us toward, toward quiet Christ. Never underestimate, never underestimate the transforming work of God's grace. Remember Judah. I don't know any other way to say it, but to say Judah is transformed from a whoremongering pagan living wimp to a loving, sacrificial, selfless leader who says to his father, I will stand in Benjamin's place simply for my love for you. So today as we, as we think about Christ, our substitute, 1 John 4 says it this way, 1 John 4.10, And this is love. Not that we loved God, but that He loved us. Stop. We must stop trying to make God's love like our love. Our love is but a shadow of His love. You get that? And so sometimes we look down in the baby when God gives us our little precious children. We look down in the cribs and we see them googly goggly and we say, the love of God for us. No. Here's what you need to remember. Do you remember that crazy guy when the, when the disciples went off and Jesus stepped off and there was a demon-possessed, crazy, naked guy who kept trying to hurt and kill people and hurt and kill himself? In there, that's who you are. And until we see that, we can't appreciate 1 John that says, and this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us. And He sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sin. God stood in His place and He stood in your place. Not because we are all that, but because He is. Is that who you're entrusting? God's providence is good and is active. Are you trusting in it? Verse 11 tells us how do we know? Beloved, if God so loved us, then we ought to love one another. No one has ever loved God. If we love one another, God abides in us and His love is perfected in us. True love. Men, true love. Is both selfless and sacrificial. It puts ourself in harm's way for the good of others. Physically and spiritually. It's what Christ did. Removed our wrath. And listen, now and forever, He promises this to you. Promises it to me. I will prepare you. I will preserve you. And I will deliver you safely into my presence without spot or blemish. That's the presence of Christ our King, our substitute this morning. It's good news, but listen to me. As we go out into the world, where we work and where we live and who's coming in next week to VBS, 
if we, listen to this quote, if we blunt the sharp edges of the cross, we dull the glittering diamonds of God's love. Told someone that between the services. If you do not deal with God's hate, you will never understand God's love. For God hates that which is the opposite of his love. And so let's take the gospel once for all delivered to the saints unless brothers and sisters deliver it. Because God is the one who transforms. Are you trusting in the Lion of Judah? He is all we have to offer. And He is enough. So Lord, as we bow before You, Lord, we can tell. We can tell how precious God's grace is to us by how we love each other. We can tell how beautiful God's mercy is by how we deliver the message of the gospel to those who need it. Oh God, don't let us get comfortable in this building. Don't let us build some kind of kingdom here on earth that revolves around man. For you have given us a mission. You have removed your wrath from us. We praise you for it. You have given us the grace of brokenness over our sin. So that we may see the beauty of your mercy. God, let us see it this morning. Let us not be able to keep it to ourselves. There are people that are suffering physically and spiritually. And we have Christ. So God, work among us. Oh God, use us. We want to be used. We want to be fruitful. And Lord, if we have to suffer to be fruitful, prune us, Lord. For we love you. Christ is our Judah. Now we stand completing Him. You see us as Judah? Not because of works we've done, but by the power of the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Lord, it is Him that we pray. And it is in Him that we stand now and sink. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. I'll be at the front to receive you, and you respond as God leads.